Welcome to the Microbial Secret Society, where David and I dive deep into the microbial realm and initiate you into the Microbial Secret Society. So enjoy our podcast. The first hour is always free, and the second hour is only available to members at microbialsecret.org. So thank you, and uh, let's begin. Okay, three, two, one. We're live. Aloha, and we're live on another episode of the Microbial Secret Society podcast. Yeah, so we're here uh, kind of um, in the morning. Usually usually we record these episodes in the afternoon, so hopefully we got our youthful energy and uh, not so exhausted on our episodes, because I've been feeling last uh, last couple ones we did, it's like the end of a day after teaching for like four hours, and then being with a whole bunch of people and then trying to record a podcast has been a somewhat challenge, yeah. So you, you like the the morning opportunity maybe better to have a little bit more vibrancy and energy. We'll see, bro. We're gonna we're gonna jump, pick we're, it up. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna check it out. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I don't know. Before one, at one point you mentioned how like. I don't know what the statistic was, but you said like the big island is growing so fast that like the roads have to multiply by X amount or else we're not going to be able to sustain it. And I was like, oh, that's not true. Like living in Puna where there's not much traffic and then cruising to Hilo today and like a drive that would have taken 30 minutes or 40 minutes max took about an hour and a half. So I definitely, yeah, there's definitely like, a, there's a lot of people in there small lanes so yeah so so that's a new new concept for you is this morning now you got a different morning commute everybody trying to go from the the jungle into the city for to work for their work day to earn their money and to buy their food and then go back to the jungle to enjoy the the pristineness of it but i think the mathematical formula you're talking about is when i talk about exponential growth Mm -hmm. and how that kind of works with the roads is that Hawaii was growing at like 30% or like tw- above 20%, which if you're, I think if you're growing at 7% growth rate, you double every 10 years. So you can kind of take that math to like 7% to 20%, which is roughly three times more than that. So you take that 10 years that we have that would be your doubling period for, for 7% growth. And you say, well, we're going to divide that by three. So it's roughly every, you know, three times three is nine. So it's every three, three and a half years, Hawaii is going to double in this doubling number. Because, you know, following the math, you could actually do the mathematical formulas. But just understanding that, that the population is going to double every five years or so, roughly, which means that every five years there's going to be twice as many cars. So five years ago when we thought, oh, there's a lot of cars, in five years there's going to be twice as many. Five years from now, there's going to be twice as many as there are today. So we, you know, you came through and you waited in traffic. Potentially you're going to have to wait five times longer in traffic unless they build more roads or widen the roads. Mm. But widening the roads or building more roads is a linear relationship whereas the population growth is an exponential relationship. Is there any way to make more roads exponentially? 
No, because that would mean that every person that builds a house would have to like kind of build their own build road. their like take care of their road or something. Yeah, in a and sense. yeah, and then we all kind of use these major like backbone roads, like we all use like Highway Eleven to get here, you know. And so you can't build like another highway next to it. I mean, you could, and you can, but as your population doubles, you're going to have to continue, and so. What what this means is five years from now, we're going to have to double the roads. Ten years from now, we're going to have to quadruple the roads. Fifteen years from now, we're going to have to have eight times as many roads to stay up with current population growth. So only in only 15 years, we're going to have to have eight times as many roads to keep the traffic as it is today, like on those eight roads. Is that even possible? Well, that's that's what they call the limits to growth. Like, have you ever heard of Malth, Malthus? Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's a Malthusian. It's a um, he was a, a philosopher that talked about, you know, like the limits of the earth are limited, the resources of the earth are limited, and that if we continue to grow, we'll use them all, and. He, he, you know, predicted, he was kind of like the first 2012 guy that was like, oh, the world's going to end, you know, all this stuff. And and here we are today, far beyond his prediction of when, you know, a human population doubling, just just like I'm talking now, there's limits to growth, like, like other things are going to happen. Like, not all those people are going to move to Hawaii, you know, there's other land restrictions before our roads have to get eight eight times as much in 15 years something's going to happen in between there like the economy change you know whatever shifts Mm -hmm. so so there's like limits to exponential growth and and there's other external factors that play a, a role in basically the expansion and the kind of the change of what's going to happen in in hawaii not just based on solely the population so you kind of came back from uh from a recent trip to washington dc which i feel like deals with like change and growth and these different things would you be willing to kind of share about that at all yeah yeah well so so, yeah to transition out of the exponential theory back to uh going to washington dc whoo man um yeah what a the belly of the beast man in in terms of uh i can you know one of my main conclusions i had coming back uh after spending five days in washington dc was that i sat on the front porch like stoop of the airbnb i was staying at and i watched all these people run by me like people going and going and going. And I know, and my takeaway was that we've lost porch culture where people just hang out on the porch and talk story and your neighbors come in by and you say, what's up? And you kind of find out about the day. Mm -hmm. And we transitioned into like screen culture where all of us are addicted to like a smartphone and even as we're walking down the street, we're like, oh, I hope this fucker doesn't talk to me because I want to look at my phone and be in my own Instagram world and get my likes here versus having interaction on the, you know, as we walk by. 
and in that that that's more of like porch culture where you're like someone's walking by your porch you say hey hey how's it going you know oh you want some you know lemonade or whatever you know and there's hundreds of people walking by so it's not possible to interact with everyone to that level of detail but we're now all in screen culture where we all come at the end of the day and we walk into our homes and we flip on a TV screen or we open our phone on the toilet or we go into like our virtual worlds. And I think I felt this disconnect in culture that, that I don't, I didn't really connect with people cause I'm only in my own screen zone cause we're in screen culture. But as I sat on the front porch of this place, I was like kind of bringing porch culture back. But people were like, what, what is this guy doing on the front porch? You know, like, and kind of looking at, because no one else sits out there. No one else, like, enjoys the evening and kind of chats with each other. And we're all too busy going. And I think it's disconnected us. And I saw that come back into, like, the capital and how, how we interact with our representatives. It's more of this individual than, like, a, a community you know, like you're in closed offices. You're we're like in that screen versus like porch culture where it's like, you know, come come to my office and we'll have a meeting and, you know, we all got these issues. And anyway, I just I felt this uh this isolation in America to summarize. So you observe through your time in the Airbnb that maybe the culture there is a little bit more fast pace mm-hmm. and less personal in the sense, like physical, like human to human connection. Yeah. D- due to uh, being raised in like a sc- screen generation. And then when you met with Congress people, it, it felt like maybe it, it was a little harder to like, have conversations as like a community because it felt like maybe you were like one-on-one with these people or in these like separate buildings or spaces or offices, but you know, yeah. 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 And, and yeah, feeling the, um, everyone there lobbying lobbying for a special interest. Like most of us are like, Oh, we want to get special interests out of government yet. We're there lobbying to try to get, you know, particular favors or money or whatever sent our way towards a noble cause, right? Towards the farmer's union. But so is every other cause that's there. They're noble, but they're trying to get these special interests. Like we're trying to get some of our money back pointed at our organization. And it's not, it it, it doesn't, from my, my perspective, it doesn't appear to be helping us all. It's kind of like the loudest voice or the the person who lobbies the most or I'm not really sure how the Washington works. You know, it seems like this this one bill we were discussing for Farmers Union uh, is the what they call USMCA. USMCA. Yeah, which is to replace NAFTA, which was the North American Free Trade Agreement. And USMCA stands for United States Mexico Canada Agreement. USMCA. It's all those. It's an acronym for all those countries like that together. And what it is is it's a trade bill, so they can exploit people in different ways and you know make economies work. And 
that's part of it is we wanted the human rights parts added to that so that if I like one example they gave was there's a company in Michigan making tires they open a plant in Mexico and they have to pay their workers $20 an hour in Michigan they open a plant in Mexico they're able to pay their workers $2 a day or something like two you know less than less than five bucks a day and so then they're importing those same tires back into the United States and now instead of the company, you know, they didn't have to change their price. They just undermined the labor and paid the labor way less. You know, $5 instead of $20 an hour, $5 a day. Then they bring those tires back. And now that money they saved on the labor exploitation is now profit for the company. And so what they're trying to do with these bills, like, or what are, we want to add, you know, human rights parts to this. So like if you're if you're not paying your workers in Mexico what you would pay them in America, then there has to be some sort of tariff to the, um, you know you know to make that so it's a, it's not just exploitation of workers. To create a system that's more balanced and people are mutually compensated for their time and energy and there's not like people taking advantage of others because of looser like labor laws and stuff in, in, in foreign countries. Yeah, and for whatever reason those are in those foreign countries. I, I don't know why Mexico wouldn't, you know, it, like I guess it's up to the Mexicans to say, hey, we're not going to work at your tire factory until you pay us a comparable wage. But that, But that's getting to like, you know, the whole new world order and like the globe... And, you know, like, like forever, for at least for the past 200 years, the Western models, or, or longer, 600 years, it's it's gone on this Western model of exploitation of, like, cheap slave labor elsewhere to, to bring the goods. And that's not really sustainable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> In, in the long run, at least. Well, the, the wages are rising elsewhere. One, one interesting thing I've noticed here in Hawaii is when I go up to the national park, the Volcanoes National Park, the tourists are now Chinese and Indian. As opposed to? They, they used to be European, American... Um, you know, there's there's some Russians up there, but it's much more countries that we would consider like like India is more like third world, and and China's more third world, whereas like European countries are more like first world. Mm-hmm. And it used to be more first world tourists, but now it's it's Chinese and Indians are the predominant uh, t- tourists that I see up there. And you believe that's due to. The, the change in the economies and how I was saying we go to these countries and we exploit them for cheap labor like China for since the 90s until like 2012 was like just cheap labor um, you know slave shops kind of thing and now their labor standards have risen the people you know are charging more of a fair wage most of the goods produced in China are now going back into China Whereas before they used to just produce goods and send it to America, mm-hmm. 
now the demand because they've you know wages have risen people can afford the same microwave that would have just been sent to america is now going into china but ultimately like wouldn't it be cheaper in china if you're gonna make something you know no the the cheapest place to buy things is america because it comes down to our our money monopoly our guns that protect oil and you production of oil is is how we we create cheap goods around the world for america so so in america we say oil has to be traded in dollars and america we just go and we say oh how many dollars is this and then we just run our printing press to say, oh, it's $10. Okay, we'll print $10 and then we'll buy it. Great. If you're France and you say, how much is this oil? And we say it's $10. Then you go to America and you say, hey, how, how can I get $10 from you? Because you can't run your printing press because you're France and we, we have the monopoly on the printing press. So you have to say, okay, well, we'll sell you these chairs for $10. And we go, great. And we just print $10 and we give it to you. And now we got chairs. And now you go buy that oil, and now you can produce something else. And so we control the entire global thing by, by having the guns and oil and setting that you have to buy oil in United States dollars. And we can just print that money. Whereas every other country, like if you want it, you got to buy something from America, or sell something to America. Really? That's tr- That's like a fact that... You can only buy oil in in U.S. dollars. Yeah, unless unless you domestically produce it, right? If you domestic, like if I'm Brazil and I domestically produce my own oil, then sure I can just have that oil. But every other country, you have to have oil has to be traded in U.S. dollars. But that's so strange because doesn't the oil not come from here for the most part? Well, we but it comes from Texas and Saudi Arabia and like the Red Sea, and those are the places we we own pretty militarily. Like you know, the King Saud of the Saudi Arabias, they have this thing with Trump right now about him sending our military out and whatever. But those guys are are that's what the um you know the wars in the Middle East are over, because Saddam Hussein was going to trade in euros. He, he was going to say, that that's what the Gulf War was about. That's why Bush took him out. He, he was saying to those guys, he was saying, look, I, I don't want to trade in dollars anymore. I'll trade in the euro. And now that would mean America would have to go and produce stuff, sell it to euro, like U- U- Europe, whoever's using the euro, get euros and then buy oil from Iraq, who's who's a fairly large producer in the game although not as big as the Saudis. So so th- is, this, is this new to you? A little bit. I mean, yeah, a little bit new. <clears throat> I mean, because that's why goods and services are so cheap in America. That's why Americans, you know, but it's shifting, it's changing. It's shifting and changing to something else because the standard and quality of care is going up internationally. Well, I mean, we we are we are. It's like where the way I presented it just there, I presented it like we print it all the time. We just print new money. It's not always true. We don't just 
always print every new dollar. There are trade deficits and different um, trade exchanges that we do because if we just printed it any time, the world would revolt. So we use systems where we use like quantitative easing or like these different monetary policies that the Fed, Federal Reserve puts out. So we don't just print everything. But in the last, between 2008 and today, the last 10 years, uh, we've, we've printed uh, like eight times the amount of money that was in the world before, at least. So for every dollar you have, there's eight more dollars that are competing for the same amount of goods and services. That just makes me think about Bitcoin and how you can't create more of it. And there's like 21 million or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a gold standard. Yeah, type but, of, type but that money. that's not the first time that a world leader has like claimed that they wanted to be backed by a different type of currency and then was assassinated. Like Myanmar Gaddafi, who literally got, he wanted to switch to the gold standard and he found primary water and was giving like free water to people in the Sahara desert. And then he, he, NATO. So that's NATO is NATO different than what we were talking about earlier. Or is that what you're talking about? NAFTA. Yeah. NATO is the North American treaty Treaty organization. Okay. Okay. So that's a little bit different than came out of the cold war. So do do you feel like your time in D.C. was uh, beneficial and you were able to inoculate some people or find out anyone interesting was um, or is like a member of the secret society already? Well, yeah, I mean, I can I can tell you it's like the grand mystery of my life. It was like an unfolding, right, to just go and to to be invited into the capital and to be in this power space and to like understand the world as vibrations and energies and to like be there and synchronize with that. Um, hopefully did it, was it beneficial in a good way, um, for the union? I think, I think so. Um, building those relationships takes time and I got to see, more of how it functions and when I say it I'm referring to like the machine you know you hear people talk about the machine or rage against the machine and it's this thing that's there that is very out of touch and not serving the people in any meaningful way nor could it but what you can do with it is you can get these special interests answered. And if you have some really good special interests that you were able to put forward, then you could get some really cool initiatives going. Like imagine these politicians write legislation into or make an appropriation for the Farm Apprentice Mentorship Program that the Farmers Union is putting forward. So that means the idea where what, what we've talked about previously, where we, where we called it the surf program, where it's instead of woofing, you come and you get a basic training into farm apprentice mentorship, 
and then you go to these different after your basic training which lasts you know however many weeks we deem necessary to get a basic training past certain metrics of skill sets then you go to these different farm apprentice sites around the island and you can check you know the website to see which places have openings and imagine that was well funded as like a seed startup saying okay we we want to do this and what we want to do is take this vision which what i what i learned um talking with a few of the folks is you know really to have a business plan as if it's a private business and to just go get your special interest here you know which probably would serve the you know the people's good but imagine that that farm apprentice mentorship was given the support from that level what what kind of support would that look like like what yeah what what kind of funding is needed to like create that infrastructure like where would those resources go is my kind of question for to establish that program well so i mean i see like my my ultimate my ultimate answer to all this is like just to kind of dismantle that stuff and to not tax us anymore and just to let us keep our money and to go uh, libertarian laissez-faire like just stop taxing us and just enforce contracts and like you know and help us defend for the greater good what bitcoin again smart contracts right well but but i but to come back to this and to come back to the machine in the way it is established in the way without like saying okay let's just get rid of it but instead to to work within it i i could see something where um similar to how they want to have free college tuition and these these ideas are coming up or there's student loans for education um and they do have loans for farmers and things and they do have like these usda programs but for some reason i don't feel like that like i haven't necessarily taken advantage of them i I don't know if you have Mm -mm. and i know they put out all this stuff like the equip program through nrcs but what I could see is like like a little bit of a farmer stipend program and to help like like in Korea they actually pay their farmers a stipend really because they know that ag- like they make so much money with Samsung and the high tech stuff this kind of goes almost like Andrew Yang on this where like they're making so much money on high tech stuff that they subsidize their farmers so they say, okay, you're a farmer, you you grow rice. I mean, I guess similar to what we do with corn subsidies. But in a way where it's like, it, it transitions us to regenerative agriculture. And it gives a path forward for, um, you, you know, for, for, for young farmers. And I, and I think it needs the other two parts of this. Which are the other two farmers union um, initiatives which are food hubs and then um, land trusts. So getting, getting people onto land and, and the food hub. So, so at, like as you, as you help farmers out with a stipend and then you have these food hubs and we're able to switch production from very far away supply lines to very um, localized um resilient domestics uh, food production systems 
that 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 those things and you get farmers onto land so that the farmers we can kind of get people where they where they're growing that those three things together would be a way like that if there was supported that way it'd be a quick way to transition back to like a uh, um, a carbon neutral like climate change worthy because i feel like those farmers that lifestyle is more harmonious with our our microorganisms Mm. so creating like a farmer stipend program that supports farmers and then also having local food hubs for people and growers and farmers to sell and then for consumers to buy produce and restaurants and stuff like that and um yeah that's I saw that's happening now in Kohala with their hub. You know, you can purchase veggies and fruits and stuff from from there today, which would be, you know, local. Yeah. <coughs> well, <coughs> the thing I noticed about the the farming there and the farming that's in front of the legislature is that it's not like what we're experiencing here in Hawaii there it's like commodity agriculture they're worried about like thousands of acres of of grains and stuff you know and and soy soy and corn and these commodity type of crops and so i don't know you know i'm talking about all this stuff and it's really like a radical different way of living Mm -hmm. and i don't know if people are ready for that i mean i still i still think another another great thing to do would be to put IMOs like like some sort of the the legislature could pass something where it could say like you, you we got to do biological soil testing and you have to have more biology or or you know this adequate threshold of biology in your soil um, to to get these um, to get the subsidies you know like if you're doing farming where you're degrading the soil then we're not going to subsidize that anymore. You know, you can still farm. We're not going to fine you or whatever, but we're not going to give you the same corn subsidy. Well, how does that switch? Because, like, typically in the past, the subsidies were from, like, through the government, but were, like, lobbied by, like, Monsanto or Bayer, these other chemical ag companies where they're actually um, kind of promoting the chem ag in a sense yeah yeah so so i mean you just have to have a new lobby that's what we're there doing the farmers union lobby Uh, so just a new lot but like how does lobbying really work though like like how how can you compete against someone that has like much more like perceived power resources or things like that like bear because like, they were probably there lobbying for something, right? In somewhere on that, in the capital. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure they were there, and, and but so so what it comes down to is ROI, return on investment. Return on investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that representative going to invest in? And and usually right now today, they're investing in Bayer because Bayer's like, okay. So so let me let me give you a little bit of backstory of what I learned that when you the the we think the politician is there 
and like representing us and spending all this time like you know putting our, their their voice for us and like spending time in congress and that kind of stuff something like uh three-fifths of their time is spent at a desk with a phone calling people to ask them to contribute to their campaign their next upcoming campaign and and the other time is spent at like dinners and breakfasts and lunches with with contributors to sit there to be like hey you know haha yeah give us money and this so when you start to understand that three-fifths of your like like you you know Maisie Hirono right our, our representative here our senator time is spent actually calling people and saying hey what's up it's Maisie yeah so you're gonna kick down for me this year you know I could really use a contribution I'm doing all these great things three-fifths of her time is spent scrounging for money and only two-fifths is spent like like reading policy or like legislating and it's actually they're paying we're paying them to to re-elect themselves so when I learned that that's just backstory when I learned that I learned okay ROI, return on investment. What does this candidate need a return on? If they're investing all this time calling people and saying, hey, yeah, I need your money or I need your whatever. If we can come to them and we can say, hey, look, us and all of our 10,000 members across the state would love to vote for you. If you could do this. And now you have this return on investment that if they invest in you and they actually put your bill forward and they actually start to put this on a national policy where it's like, okay, like we want farm apprentice mentorship approved. And when you vote for this, all these young millennial people will, will recognize that and they will vote for you. You know, and how do you package and deliver that to them? Or, or in the case of Bayer, they come in and they say, oh, well, we want this, and then guaranteed we'll get you $100,000 in campaign contributions. Because we have this network, and we have this money, and we have access to the printing press or, like, the insiders who do. And sure, we can get you reelected. And they give them money. So it's all about return on investment. Why is that? Pol- it's special favors to the to the nth degree. They always say, "Oh, we want to eliminate special favors." No, this is like the epitome of special favors. So how do you get that special favor to you? What are you going to give them back? You know, how are you going to make that? Like, because it's more than just a politician. It's their staffers. It's the whole office. It's then once you get one office to go and embrace one bill, now you got to get support. And you got to get bilateral support, meaning you got to go talk to all, both, all the parties that are hanging out there and get them all on board. And they usually want to have these divide and conquer. I'm red, you're blue faction. Like, I won't vote for your stuff because you're a, just your guy's a dick and you're all guys a dick too. And like, it's a bunch of dick wars versus like coming and being like, okay, my people need farm apprentice mentorship. And when I support that, I'm going to get so many people behind me because now we're going to switch to an agrarian culture where it's not it's not primitive, but it's like sophisticated agrarianism along the lines of like Korea. What's the definition of agrarianism and what are there any cultures in the past that were considered that agrarian? Yeah, 
all cultures were agrarian we're only we're not today because we import everything the, the world's our slave growing everything you know like we talked about the dollars being printed you know but an agrarian agrarian culture just means based on agriculture like what is what is the backbone of your culture it's like right now backbone of america we're a warrior culture what we do is we go around the world, we train the best soldiers, we have the best military in the world, we spend the most money on it, and we go, and instead of growing our resources, we bring our bad boys in through the night, parachute them in, and they freaking take it. And if they don't take it through military force directly that way, we take it through the trade wars and these sanctions that we place upon people. Where we say, oh, well, you want oil. Hmm? Well, what are you going to give us for dollars? <laughs> and then if they don't trade in dollars, that's when we send in the military. But we basically grind them down to say, well, you know, we'd really like 10 million microwaves for like five bucks. Or for, for 10 barrels of oil or, you know, whatever. Like we just, we make the rules. And if they, if they play, you know, and so we grind the world in this way. I guess it just makes me curious of like, wanting to follow the rabbit hole like a little bit deeper and in like how this system i guess we've kind of talked about it in previous episodes but how how this has become has become the reality that we're we're facing well a lot of it is is complacency the the, the, the citizens don't care like they just sit around they don't know they don't care but then also how did we get all that complacent is these same guys who make these rules took over our education systems. Like in the 70s, they created the Department of Education. And instead of people, you know, it became this curriculum that was passed down that was like these standards and these tests and these things that then you didn't have the economic freedom where it's like, you know, you didn't learn about this in economics class in high school, right? Like no one, no one like looks at the world like okay. Well, why is America in charge? Okay, we're a militaristic <coughs> empire. You know what is um, you know like these these like looking at it like instead they're like oh no no no. I I did have a finance class in college. It was like an engineering finance class, and. I asked the teacher about the Federal Reserve, and that's kind of when I started really going deep in that realm of of how they just like print money and that that stuff. And he he was just like not interested in answering any sort of questions that had to do with the Federal Reserve. But but I just thought it was interesting, you know, if you're teaching about finance, where where does that money come from? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, this is this comes down to like Logan's um, thing of where he's saying like there's there's this web of control and that these folks are actually like um, what do you like um, like in the club and and I don't I don't know I don't know if the university professors and stuff because you do it, it is like you do take some oaths and have weird things like you you know if you look at when you graduated from school, you ever noticed you had a mason's uh, cap on, a mason's mortarboard cap? 
and then you wore a gown you know and it's black like for saturn and then when you go when you reach for your diploma you reach with your left hand and you cross over to shake the guy's hand and like make this cross in front of you with with and there's this whole ritual that everyone does so, so you, are you saying that like these masonic occult traditions are almost like subconsciously being passed through the systems even if we're not really like aware of them yeah yeah just just like when i mean people celebrate christmas and they're not really sure of why and what <laughs> but they just do it and it feels good and they you know it's just like the, the graduating from high school is a very specific procedure you go through that looks uncannily like masonic rituals and and so similar to this like you know if you're going and you're teaching as a college professor and you're in this system you know, maybe subconsciously somehow you can't discuss the Federal Reserve or, or whatever, like you're bound by some oath or who knows the depth and pervasiveness of, you know, or, or for some reason they're just adverse, adverse to it. But, but you gotta, you gotta question why would you be adverse to something like that? Especially if your whole life is based on like finance and money, you know what I mean? Like, and eventually you'd stumble upon, well, wh where does it come from? Who controls it? But I, I guess not. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not the case for everybody. Um, I, I called, I called into, uh, I, I pitched our, our podcast. To who? To another podcast. Oh yeah. It's called The Pitch. The Pitch. Have you ever heard it? Uh, no. It's a podcast that real startups pitch to real investors with real money. That's kind of like their tagline or whatever. But it, it's kind of like Shark Tank, but you basically hear like a, an entrepreneur's pitch and then there's like a room full of investors and then you hear their responses and then um, they either invest or they don't and then sometimes they'll like fast forward like a year and then they'll check back back in on the company or you know they'll follow it for like a, a time period after so the other day so on september 11th they they had a call in where you pitched you know your idea or whatever to them and um I just, yeah, I pitched the Secret Society to them. It was only only 30 seconds. It took me about 40 times to call in to get a hold of them. But, uh, yeah, they, they, every time you get them the voicemail, they said, hi, you've reached a pitch. We're not, we're actually not accepting voicemails right now. Please call, please call us again. And just, like, called, 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 and then eventually got through and pitched about, yeah, the, the secret society and how we're asking you to partner with us and help spread like regenerative agriculture and how to transform like fallow or toxic lands into rich nutrient dense environments with beneficial indigenous microorganisms. And they asked a few questions and then, yeah, they, they said they'll let me know. <laughs> so cool. Was it live like on their podcast? Um, it was recorded. Um, so we can go back to it or no? It, it wasn't like on their podcast podcast, but they're probably going to make a podcast out of all the people that called. Because like they, they did it previously where it was a minute pitch and they took like the three 
their three favorites and then they actually played those clips on the podcast and then they decided which one of the three that they were going to invite to be on their show to pitch to investors oh cool so so we're in the queue yeah we're in the queue but it, it was re- i got really nervous but it was fun to, to do it i feel like i could yeah, I definitely should have probably like written it down or like practiced a little bit better of an elevator pitch. I just got really kind of nervous, but well, well, that's that's what we just learned in watching DC. It's like lobbying one hundred and one, and how to go in and like how you know basically you just want to gain rapport with the folks and then you know make your ask kind of thing. But it, it's it's interesting tactics. Like we what we were what we were advocating for we didn't i i feel like this is common throughout my life but i don't have an actual like people are like well what do you need i'm like it's kind of vague of what i what i truly need Hmm. so being able to be more specific with what your needs are and how to like because that's what i feel like people need whether it's like lobbyists you know talking to politicians or especially entrepreneurs pitching to vcs or angel investors is what do you need and like what like what specifically do you need why do you need that and you know where where are you at right now in terms of like your yeah what what you're bringing in um what your expenses are your your acquisition cost for a customer the retention rate on each customer all those types of things I feel like are really important for, yeah, ex- ex- especially, yeah. But but I, I enjoy listening to the podcast because if there's any entrepreneurs who are listening to the Microbial Secret Society, um, the investors ask a lot of good questions. So if anyone was ever to, yeah, need to pitch their idea or try to seek funding from other people, there's a lot of good questions that I feel like need to be answered within yourself as an entrepreneur to be able to like really be able to communicate what what you're needing and why Hmm. so so listening to that podcast as a way to get inspiration to get clarity for your own ideas like what what questions they ask you ask yourself those same questions yeah exactly and i yeah I'm, i'm trying more and more to do it and put it into practice of like yeah there's just like there's i feel like a total noob when it when it comes to like businesses and stuff when it when i hear some of these people talk it's just that they know their stuff like so well yeah yeah so well where they're like it's like that's that's like their favorite pitches is the ones where like it's like the entrepreneur and the investor don't necessarily have to agree but like when they ask questions and they're just like they're like unshakable they know what they know how to like navigate the conversation and to like kind of keep getting them to ask more and more questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, so what we did was we had these things called talking points, which basically we had like four um, four agendas we wanted to get through. Like there was four different bills that they wanted to kind of talk about. And so they would just give us these talking points where you kind of relate it to like, like your story to this big national story that brings in um you know so so one of the sheets that we were given was this thing called the farmer's share which it said for like a thing like soda 
it's sold for like a dollar fifty. The farmer's share is like six cents. So you know, a head of lettuce is sold for like three dollars. The farmer's share is like twenty cents. You know, and it showed these things where like the farmer basically doesn't get any, and that was like the thing that was like the national policy. Like they want, you know, they want more, uh, less consolidation in the market or something. But so you would take your personal story of like. Well, you know, as a farmer, it's hard. You know, I run a balance sheet and I can't make, you know, I can't grow lettuce on a small scale without working for about $2 an hour. And then here's, you know, why. Because it relates to this, how little the farmer gets of the actual retail value. And then that relates to our our larger policy, which I think for that one was like a safety net for farmers. That, you know, if, if all of a sudden we can't make it and you, you don't want to kill your farmers... And so it would it would relate like a personal story through this data into like a national policy. Hmm. So I felt like that was a that's what they were teaching us to do. But really what you, what we were supposed to be doing in these pitches was we were supposed to be the emotional anchor. Telling the story because like you you would be the or whatever way they perceive you, you would be that micro of the macro for them. Just how like you, you, they teach you to like talk about this farmer, John Blue or whatever. And, you know, he can't grow lettuce and that whole thing. And then being able to relate that to a bill that would have an effect on all different farmers across the, the country. It's like you being there, whoever is giving the pitch to them is they're they're drawing it from from you in a sense because i mean as a farmer and stuff but i but i yeah and and you like like that emotional anchor i think is important in its like presentation and the way it's communicated as the catalyst like imagine imagine you have this great product but the person that is the emotional anchor that person that is the conduit between product and customer is not presenting themselves in like this way that like it's it's a bottleneck in a certain sense or like not a way that the thing can pass through so so what i'm saying in this in this case where i'm lobbying i'm the emotional anchor for this whole national farmers union policy Mm -hmm. going up but if i come into the meeting late then their whole perception of like my thing is down you know, you know, like, like, like they're when later when they're thinking of that bill and that bill comes up, they're going to think, wow, those freaking farmers are late. They suck anyway. You know, I'll just screw them over and vote for this, you know, against the farmers versus if I come in as that emotional anchor and I'm presented well, I'm wearing like a nice suit. They can see that I'm a farmer. I tell them a real personal story about how my farm here in, in my regenerative practices are, are making a difference and that if you know i don't have this thing line up that you know my and so when they're there voting for the bill the picture of myself pops up in their head and they think oh am i gonna screw over that nice guy in the suit that had that great story about his farm and stuff and i'm the emotional anchor like i'm the piece that that whole data and all that it was it's great but it was unconnected until they had me and they think of they're like am i gonna fuck him over right now Am I going to push this button or that button? And that's what I'm saying, like, with these, all these pitches and everything is, like, that's the, like, great product behind you, great legislation, great bill. 
but being that e- that emotional anchor, that conduit that makes the pitch and makes the pitch in a way where you, like you look like somebody that they're wanting to, you know, you know, represent the whole project, mm. and, and that that part of it I feel is is crucial in this whole thing, right? Imagine imagine you have the, the same pitch. But without like enthusiasm in your voice to be like, bro, you know, check out the microbial secret society. It's great. You're gonna love it. And and that kind of like contagious talk of like, because this great product can be there, but if you if you're not pitching it, you're not being that that lobbyist that 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 point. Are, are we in uh, hour two? We uh, we're about nine minutes. About nine minutes. Yeah. Okay. Cause um, I guess I could just share it. I mean, I don't know. It's going to be a lot of competition, but, um, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, trying a new value added natural farming product to test to market. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds intriguing. So you're going to, you're going to be value adding some natural farming stuff and putting it for sale in front of people. Yeah. Um, like a fermented plant juice soda. So if you mi- if you get like mineral water, like there's got to be a better way. I know that there's a better way to do it, but I've tried it with like Pellegrino water or whatever. You get like the bubbly water and you mix a little bit of fermented plant juice, flower juice or fruit juice. And it tastes like a, like a carbonated soda. Oh yeah. 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 I, I've, I've done that before. So you're going to, you're going to bottle and sell people water basically. Uh, when you say it like that, it doesn't really make me want to do it. I know, I know. Isn't that isn't? But that's like Pepsi and Coke are some of the biggest businesses on earth, and they essentially are selling water in plastic. They're a plastic company that sells water. Okay, so maybe, maybe that's not the way, the way to do it. I I really don't believe in selling water. Like I don't. Like I I even will bring water to people where I spray, and I don't charge them for the water because I don't think people should be charged for water. Yeah, well, th- but this is like the ultimate thing of like those drinks. Like if you sold a concentrate mix in for the thing, but then they're still going to need the sparkling water. Yeah. And there's, there's ways to, I guess there's ways with like CO2 and stuff where you can take a tank and you can kind of like put it in and um, it will make it sparkling. And then in terms of like mineral water, you know, there's lots of wells and stuff in, in say like Cow where the water just comes out. And it's like mineral, it's really hot, so it needed to be cooled. So there, there's definitely ways to get a good source. But then when you say like, well, you're basically bottling water and selling it. And I don't know, that, that kind of just goes against maybe my personal beliefs. But but when I tried it, I really enjoyed it. And I felt like this like zing of energy um, with it. And, it. and it's way better than like any any soda or, you know, it's like a probiotic natural soda which isn't necessarily, you know, there's there's really high margins in the beverage industry, um, as you can imagine. And I feel like there's a lot of white space, and white space is basically this, like, open region of... If, if, you, if you draw, like, a cross, and then you put, like, two different things on, the, on, a, on each axis to compare, like, companies that are in the same, like, field you try to find like the white space where where the companies aren't and that would that might be an opportunity to create like a a market with it like a niche market um within it so 
I don't know. Well, I, th- I think you're correct, and I think your your way of analysis and analyzing them is correct. But I think that when you when when it's looked at to be like a um uh like like the bottle the the soda company, it's not the product that you're putting in the soda that like matters like the fpj and that that type of thing which is amazing is great and it's awesome what it what it comes down to is when i see i see people like like kapila cracks coconuts and then put it and then wanted to offer his coconut juice for sale to people uh-huh. what what happened to him was there was like a shelf life with it yeah the coconuts only last so long except like a few days or so i mean they start to change really quickly then then he had to do delivery on this stuff like and and then make sure it was in stock pick it up bottle it and so what it what it came down to really in his business model was like labeling and the glass jars that he was using so this this container this there's a bottle of like synergy kombucha on the table it's uh-huh. like a big bottle and it's a really nice sturdy glass bottle but I think the production is like a dollar to make that to, to, for this glass. So if you're looking at, at 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 what you're producing, like the water inside of it is is negligible cost compared to your vessel that it comes within. Uh-huh. It, like if you sell in jars or you start selling uh-huh. in bottles, and, and so that that becomes your ultimate like um, like you, you you know when you think of the business model. You got to think, okay, how can I get the glass cheaper enough and how can I get it bottled and how can I, you know, cleaned or like, and, and in Hawaii, wouldn't it be great if we just had every bottle was a standardized size, this size or that size, and that you would go and when you're done with your bottles, you put them in a, in a, um, you know, a container just like milk used to be, and then they're run through a steam cleaner and then it goes back to the bottling company and they rebottle like they used to like the Hilo soda company they used to re- like kind of like milk or something like yeah they back used in to, the day you know, collect your milk containers and then steam power steam them and then refill them with milk and you get them back like wouldn't it be great because then then in an innovative idea like this to me that's something that's like okay yeah go for it do it because your biggest hurdle with this is going to be getting a glass you know a container to put it in that you feel is not going to be adding more plastic to our mm-hmm. oceans and then you know and, and and then getting it out to 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 folks and having those those supply lines it's like you're going to have to have a whole room full of um you know glass things that you're then filling that then you put it and then you chill and then you deliver like that's th- those are the you know like a, a formula to put inside is one thing but to build the infrastructure to start delivering that mm-hmm. to somebody, that is like where the, you know, the bread and butter lies. And, and that's, that's again, like, you know, a farmer's market, you can show up in bulk. You can sh- well, that's it for our free episode. So join us at www.microbialsecret.org for the full episode and join the Microbial Secret Society. So uh, may the beneficial microbes be with you. Aloha.